Is this a podcast? We watched a We watched a movie. We did. 1956 film noir. The Killing. Stanley Kubrick. (laughs) We're both too excited. Thanks. Yes, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Starring Sterling Hayden as Johnny Clay and Colleen Gray as Faye. Those are the two I got. (laughs) (laughs) I got on the multiple choice test. (laughs) Right, it's based on a novel. Nineteen fifty-five novel. Yeah, who wrote that? Oh, um, I heard a, I read an unsubstantiated rumor that they oh. actually wanted this other book by the same author called Snatch, but it's about kidnapping a child, and the they couldn't make it because of the production code. Oh, I'm kind of glad. Uh, they remade it later. It's called The Night Before Yesterday. They remade it in, like, 63. Hmm. Um, Completely different. But then, so I so then they're like, shit, we, ha- we bought the rights for 10 grand for a movie we can't make. Oh. And they were, like, super strapped for cash at this point in their careers. But so the rumor has it that the author was, like, did them a solid and – and just traded out the rights for the book from the rights for the other oh, book. Oh, well, that's nice of him. Um, he didn't ask for more money. Right. And that's <laughs> that's just a rumor I read on the internet. So, hmm, Well, if it's on the internet. It must be true. Yeah. <laughs> but every, what do they say? In every lie, there's a bit of truth. Yeah, in every truth, there's a bit of a rascal. <laughs> I did notice they used the same horse shot for, you know, the gate scene of the credits and then also the different races and getting pre- preparing to get into the gate. Like right. they reused the same shot and in the, multiple places in the movie. Yeah. And like the announcer horns. Yeah. It was mm-hmm. like we saw that a bunch of times. It was almost like our reset. And it, it really kept the tension, I thought, and kept the pacing where it's like, OK, seventh gate or the seventh race. And we're lining up the horses, and then they go back to that morning. I was like, ah. Yeah, you don't, and because you're counting down to the race number, right? It's not the first race of the day, so they're all, like, pacing and, like, waiting around right. for that seventh race to happen, because that's when things are going to go down. But they got stuff to do. But they, everyone has a role. So the team, the heist team is made up of six people? Five. Five, thank you. Johnny, George, Randy's the policeman, Mike's the bartender, and Marv is the gambler. Mm-hmm. And Nikki, the I mean, Nikki and Marvin or Maurice are kind of the side hustlers, That's like right. the the guns and fists for hire. Yes, they get paid up front and don't have any of the take. Right, they get um, flat price to do a straight job. That's right. There were so many good. Um, lines in this so i guess they they hired jim thompson who was a crime novelist Mm -hmm. to write the dialogue and kubrick 
adapted the screenplay and so they needed help with the dialogue and one thing I read was like they were friends and one thing I read they just needed like a good person for dialogue but I thought all of the lines were just so amazing they were definitely on point there was no excess of words yes yeah it was definitely I thought the whole movie was kind of like that like it was just very tight and methodical like there was no real extra fluff or characterization it was just like everything seemed to be lined up exactly how you needed it and it felt really fast to watch really fast really tight yeah and well they but they didn't do the sequencing straightforward necessarily like because of the narration and each person's perspective in the day you have overlap of time that you're watching from a different character's perspective so it's not just like one sequencing of telling a story which is interesting versus Asphalt Jungle where it was all one sequence chain of events that you saw unfold. Right. So it's interesting, a different way of telling the story. And as you said, an Asphalt, it's so easy to compare them because they're two heist movies from film noir with the same lead mm-hmm. um, with great directors. But as you said, in Asphalt Jungle, the heist <laughs> happens like before halfway and then we see this like big bloated unfurling of their carefully crafted plot like everything goes wrong even in the heist and then everything continues to go wrong and we get to watch that yes but in this one everything goes right and it's like ticking along perfectly even the narrator's like oh he's doing right on time this Mm -hmm. morning um and then it's just at the very end it's almost like a gunshot that things start to go wrong but it's such a, a quick pacing to get up to the heist, and they do really keep the tension. Yeah, but it's only an hour and 25 minutes, so the first hour is really telling the story of them preparing for the heist, then eventually going through it from each character's perspective, and then finally, is the last 30 minutes, oh, the heist went off without a hitch, and now we're going to see what happens to these characters in the next 30 minutes, so get ready in a short time. Right. <laughs> yeah you knew it was going to go down pretty quickly so yeah and the tension um i guess not to skip ahead but you, you mentioned reservoir dogs is this this was an inspiration yes. for reservoir dogs and then i saw like a little article where it was like quentin tarantino talks about great directors that he hates and oh. stanley kubrick was one of them and i was like yeah whatever dude yeah like, maybe that's just like a yahoo like trying to get clicks but it's right. like this is obviously you know a big influence yeah you obviously were inspired by his yeah and maybe you could even say pulp fiction too just from the non-linear time Mm. period yeah so yeah the end of the whole last 10 minutes i was like oh this is just like reservoir dogs so yeah it was definitely came through so that was pretty cool but i've forgotten that you had mentioned that before and then so it just yeah and that does spark that that's definitely like a neo-noir style so it's all indicative of this style What, are, what did you think about the narration? What Did you like oh, it? Oh, yeah. I did not like the narration. I thought it was a little over the top, and it's a little obvious, and sometimes you're sort of like rolling your eyes. I did read that it was like the studio heads were requiring the narration, oh. and the narrator wasn't even credited. He was like a radio announcer. Oh. But then I also read, which I don't, I don't, I'll see if you guys notice this, but I don't think this was true. Kubrick didn't like the narration at all, so he was, like, trying to set up so the narrator was telling you false information. Mm. And so whenever the narrator would say something, something would kind of prove him to be wrong. But I thought most of the time it was pretty on point. Like, we don't see clocks to know what time it was because he talks about the time and he says things are going on time, so we don't really know. 
if it's true or not. But it seems to play out the way he does it, describe it. It does seem like he's setting us up and he's telling us the right thing. Right. The right information. I also thought it might have been a way to get around budget restrictions because I know mm-hmm. this was a shoestring budget. So it's like, you know, Johnny got stuck in traffic. So instead of just showing you a mm-hmm. one second him stuck in traffic, they could just say that. That makes sense. So maybe it was cheaper. It, it was, I think they were on a small budget, like $300,000, maybe $320,000. And it, they shot it in 24 days. Oh my gosh. So this was Kubrick's first Hollywood feature film with studio backing. Okay. And so I think the studio, MGM, wanted a big star. And so Kubrick liked sterling hayden from asphalt jungle Mm -hmm. so he got him but he wasn't like a big enough star so the studio only kicked in like 200 grand and so this is kubrick's first collaboration with his producer james harris huh and did it do well in theaters it didn't do well it Mm -hmm. barely broke even i think it lost a little bit but it got kubrick some attention and there was an executive in mgm who was sort of like oh this is interesting i like you guys Mm -hmm. and they became friends and i think the guy the executive got fired but they still got attention from hollywood and so they the three of them with the the writer um thompson get it together (laughs) (laughs) jim thompson (laughs) all worked on passive glory afterwards oh okay so it was a stepping stone for all of them it seems like he was always um struggling for money for at least these first early films and it was interesting so he um, got the attention of marlon brando and kurt douglas but so many times there was a falling out because of creative differences so it's like could have been a difficult man like marlon brando hired him to be a director they had a huge falling out marlon brando ended up directing the movie himself one-eyed jacks oh because it didn't work out so yeah, say it's all on his end. You think it's Kubrick? I guess so. I think it might be like the artist direction, and he wanted to have complete control. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be writer, editor, cinematographer, and even with this movie, he could not be his own cinematographer because they were doing like a big Hollywood picture with the cinematographers' union, Whoa. and so you can't be a director and a cinematographer per the union. He didn't like that. So he had to hire the cinematographer, and they butted heads the whole time. Kubrick was 27 oh during gosh. the making, 28 when it came out. This guy's sort of like, no, you have to do the shot this way or you're fired. Oh my and apparently the cinematographer just stopped even coming to the dailies because it wasn't He's like, why do well? I even need to be here? You're not yeah. going to allow me to do anything. Exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh, 27, already knew exactly what he wanted, how he wanted it. Quite a, yeah, he's starving artist. He's... Yeah, I guess he said, um, you know, he didn't know anything about making movies, but he thought he could make a better one than all these other movies that he had seen. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Sometimes I feel that way. <laughs> right. It's like, all oh, this is garbage, and I don't even know anything. <laughs> yeah. But he did it. He followed through. Hmm. And so he and James Harris met in Washington Square Park playing chess. Oh, that's so endearing. <laughs> and he was actually friends with the guy who played Maurice. Oh, the big him. wrestler. Yeah. yeah, he was friends with him, and they would play chess together. Like the the chess, like the weird chess club, was supposed to be like what Kubrick frequented. That's in awesome. New York. I loved Maurice. He yeah. was like one of my favorite characters. He had a lot of like 
interesting insight into life just through his conversation. And uh, so I was thinking maybe Maurice is almost like the metaphysical allegory of the movie because he's kind of saying like, you know, in the early scene when we first meet him, he's watching someone play a chess game and is like, well, you couldn't tell what was going to happen in the future. And that's kind of what happens with the heist. Right, right. Yeah. He, yeah, he's overseeing this chess game and basically telling one of them that they've already lost and he should have done this move with the rook instead of that one and so forth. Um, and then Sterling, Johnny comes up and first to ask him for his help in the heist. And I love how Maurice, when he talks to him about just getting out of jail, because Johnny says, yeah, he went to Alcatraz, which was, yeah, what a big moment we all talked about. Years. Yeah. Um, and also helped me place where they were. I was like, okay, they're near San Francisco. They're on the West Coast, at least, right, I guess. Um, but he goes, you have not learned yet that is that in this life it helps to be like everyone else, the perfect mediocrity. Individuality is a monster. It must be strangled in its cradle. He says, to make our friends feel comfortable. I thought that was interesting. He's basically telling him how to like blend in now that you're out of jail. And then he's about to come and ask him to be a part of a heist. That's most likely going to get him back in jail. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, both of them. Yeah, because Maurice says he doesn't like jail and Johnny doesn't want to go back to jail. Right. But he's also just trying to marry his fiance and kind of live a normal life, maybe. Like, we don't really know his intentions, but he's just trying to, like, get away from his life of crime previously. Yeah, he's trying to get away. He's, but at the same time, you don't need $2 million to start a new life. Well, he's shit splitting (laughs) it, you know, with five other people and then the lump sums to two other people. I mean, that's a good question. I thought all of the characters' motivations were maybe not noble, but I could understand where they're all coming from. It's kind of like Asphalt Jungle where we kind of know what the characters want their money for and we kind of are on their side. So mm-hmm. did you think that they were doing it for like the right reasons or that it was just plain greed? Um, I think each character definitely had different motive, right? I I believed in Maurice. I felt like he was like more wholesome. Same with Johnny. Um, but like Nikki, you could definitely tell he was just in it for the money um i mean well, his farm wasn't his, profitable well the fact that his job was to kill horse right but you shoot at the track i mean that you can't what kind of person to, i don't know i i couldn't imagine that person being very good um and yeah when we first meet him with the puppy and like the way he's holding it i felt like it was uh maybe foreshadowing of like a sacrificial lamb and like owing to he's gonna be he's gonna die um, which he does turn out to be killed. Um, why I was like, why else would you have this puppy? And like you said, he's at a shooting range. Like, what? That doesn't make sense. But I think it has to mean something if for him to be there. He kind of reminded me of Little Nicky, that Adam Sandler movie where Adam Sandler is a product of like an angel and a devil having a baby. <laughs> Showing me little Nicky. <laughs> I kind of forgot that he even existed. And his one tooth in the middle, his one front tooth in the middle is also a harbinger of disaster. I mentioned that before. I didn't catch it. It's so easy to compare them also to Asphalt Jungle because it's like the mastermind gets out of jail and immediately is planning another heist. Yeah. And they're also 
planning another heist maybe for the right reasons quote quote like to get their life back on track and this is the only thing they know how to like fund their future right and this is what six years after six years after yeah so it's interesting to see sterling hayden's age he's a little thicker around the middle and a little bit more uh leathery in the face but i thought he was a really compelling lead yeah i thought he you know carried his character well or like delivered it well um but I think there's a lot less characterization in this one than there was Asphalt Jungle, and I kind of missed that. I didn't care about the characters as much as I did in Asphalt Jungle. Yes, I totally agree. I think Asphalt Jungle kind of goes above and beyond to show you the motivations of the character, even if it's just the simple shot of like the crying baby in the cradle, but you're really shown the whole motivations. Here, it's just very quick. Right. It's almost like you're. it's implying that Mike, the bartender's wife, is sick. And, you know, there's just like a few lines of dialogue. But I think it's also just because it's so tight. Yeah, that's And true. so I was just learning what a B movie actually is. And this is a B movie. Oh. So it's not like a movie that's necessarily less than, but it's to fill out a double feature for the theaters. So you have your A movie, which people are going to see with your bigger stars, bigger budgets, studio backing. Right. And then you have your B movie, which is kind of to fill in the time. So they're usually shorter. They're lower budget. The studio doesn't care as much about them. So they have more free reign. Hmm. And then there are these genre pictures. So sci-fi, crime, Western. Right. So like Indiana Jones, like that was actually a B movie. Oh my gosh. Well, when you think about like the style of it, yeah, I don't, we weren't still true. doing double features, but like Spielberg knew he was making this kind of style of movie. Gotcha. So I think that's where a lot of this innovation comes from, especially with film noir, because, mm-hmm. you know, all these young directors could do what they wanted to. Right. But it's shorter, so you kind of have to pack things in. Yeah. And then you have the budget requirements. And it's like a film noir you don't necessarily need to have the big stars for, because it's like a crime movie it's kind of like horror like you don't need these big stars yeah it's more about the tension of the storyline you know not really the acting quality i mean that would elevate it for sure but it's not necessary right Mm -hmm. but i thought everyone did a good job i thought i thought johnny clay was a compelling protagonist which kind of leads me to wonder about because film noir usually has anti-heroes with maybe people that you don't really like or don't really agree with Mm -hmm. making the wrong decisions and so it kind of leads me to the question is do you personally need um a compelling and likable protagonist to enjoy the movie hmm i would say no because there are plenty of people who i think you know Go for either the underdog or the like. Anti-hero is definitely popular, right? But you sentiment. still have to believe in the person's motivations. Oh, so you mean if if like, you didn't believe in what they're actually doing, regardless of the character, can you relate? So, right? Like, can you get behind it? Because I think a lot mm-hmm. of these things with like the new anti-heroes of Walter White or whatever mm-hmm. Matthew McConaughey's name in True Detective. It's like, I'm behind them. I want them to win. Right. Even though they're doing the wrong things, but they're doing it for the right reasons. And I also think they have some kind of likability about them. Yes. So it's not necessarily that they're not likable protagonists. And I think Johnny Clay is shown to be a likable protagonist. He doesn't beat up Sherry, who... Maybe we kind of want to get beat up because she was very mean. Oh, my gosh. We can talk about that later. Yeah. 
<laughs> I'll write down a note to talk about Sherry. Oh, I have notes about Sherry. <laughs> So yeah. I guess I can't think about a really good anti-hero where you don't like them, but you're still watching the movie just to see how it unfolds. Hmm. I mean, yeah, I guess, could you say Loki? Is that, like, he's someone that people do like, but at the same time, he's terrible. So why do people like him? Like, But he brings a part of humor like i like loki like i know like i like loki but at the beginning i really don't yeah is there any protagonist that you don't you think? i guess when i was trying to watch the conversation 1974 francis ford coppola with gene hackman gene hackman is introduced as a character who's really brusque he has no he's kind of like bill murray in groundhog day in the beginning of groundhog day but bill murray can like really pull off being an asshole and he's so funny that you really like him right but gene hackman was that character but without any of the humor and so it was sort of like i don't really like this guy and it was a, a real hard part for me to continue watching the movie because i didn't like him and he was so off-putting hmm. i also found that with the italian job french connection oh french connection i also didn't like his character he's like a dirty cop right so i didn't finish the movie so maybe i actually do need a protagonist they don't have to do the right thing but i have to understand their motivations and the conversation it's revealed later about what kind of person he is and why he's like that the way he is at the beginning yeah, I think that, like you're saying, those characters do bring on a different conversation and thoughts that you have maybe about other people that, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think it is hard to watch someone that's like either degrading or, I mean, just like a terrible person. It's hard to watch that re- for a long time. I think that's pretty human to, to right. react in a way where you're like, I don't want to watch this guy. He's a terrible cop and bad to be like. Right, because you're kind of putting your trust in someone a little bit just to hold your hand with a storytelling. Right. Like, that's who I put my trust in, I guess. Not the director or the writers as much as, like, the leading person. Yeah. Because that's who you're following. Right. right. They're taking you on that journey. Right. So if I can't trust them or I don't want to watch them, it's hard. Yeah, I get that. If someone else feels differently, let us know. (laughs) Shout out to our Twitter page. (laughs) Yeah. All the people listening out there. (laughs) Oh, I did read a... I think it was Roger Ebert put um, when someone's describing the heist and how it's going down, like they were kind of at that poker table almost. They were all seated around it. That's called chalk talk. Chalk talk. The lighting. Oh, go on. No, what? Chalk talk. Explain. How is that called chalk talk? Uh, Oh, don't ask me too much. But I thought that was cool. (laughs) Maybe because it's like they're like laying out. The plan on a blackboard. That's how I'm oh. imagining it. So it's like the chalk talk of how the plan's going to go. They even have diagrams in this one. Like like the string board. Yeah, like the string board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's like the detective trying to figure out how mm-hmm. the heights went. Cool. String yeah. versus chalk. Yeah. He's going to win. He's going to win. Exactly. <laughs> um, if I can change the subject, I do want to talk about the lighting. There was a few scenes where it was like, oh, this is a Kubrick movie. Like, you can kind of tell maybe where he's going. And there is the lighting when they're doing the chalk top is really good. And then, oh, yes, when Val and Sherry are talking in his apartment about how to, like, get the money from George, they're right next to a lamp. The lamp is in the foreground, and they're in the midground. 
and the lamp is just shining on their lower faces. It was, it was a really interesting stylistic choice. And then on the day of the heist when Sherry is talking to George, it's pretty bad because she's like, once we have money, I'll be a much better wife and I won't think of myself so much. And he, the camera zooms in on him and he's almost in this different lighting than hers. It's like naturalistic morning light and it it's pretty tight on his face. And he has like, his face is kind of twitchy. He's kind of a twitchy actor. Like mousy or something. Right. I think he always plays the like milk toast mm. in film noirs, but he's like, his eyebrows go up and down. But it was so tight on him and you could kind of see him figuring it out that she knew it was the day of the heist and he's kind of listening to her intently about how she'll always love him and it was an interesting moment yeah i feel like the lighting sources in each shot was predict like pertained to that scene like mm-hmm. the harsher light was in when they're around the chalk talk because it was like more serious discussion and high stakes and then there would be times when the light was really soft, which mm-hmm. was rare. I feel like in a noir movie, it's normally more black and white and literal black and white, like Stark. harsher shadows. And you definitely know where the light source is coming from. And so, yeah, there were some that I was like, oh, this looks like really natural light and really well done. And with film and camera at that time, you had to have a lot of light to get that right. shot and so soft yeah right. so i was wondering in some of those instances how he did do that it looked more like black and white photography rather than you know right. harsh black and white film and you think that was like part of his technical abilities or his or how he got his vision across i think so i wonder what he did yeah, I just had um, one quote, and this is where um, Lucine Ballard, the cinematographer, um, and him were particularly fighting. Mm-hmm. So Kubrick wanted a long tracking shot with a camera close to the actors with a 25 millimeter wide angle lens, so a little bit of distortion. And Ballard moved it away, and he wanted a 50 millimeter lens. And so Kubrick's like, dude, you got to do it the other way. You're fired, <laughs> which is just so crazy. Like this is one of his very early movies. Right. It's he, awesome. And this was his first like professional movie, like cast crew that he had helping him. Otherwise he was just like a one man guy. Yeah. So he obviously did have the technical skills to be like, this is the specific millimeter of uh, lens I want on this camera. And I know why. Right. And he was a photographer. Oh, okay. Before this. That and makes he, sense. He did a few documentaries and a few like short movies before this oh cool i'd love to see some of his photographs yeah look magazine in new york and then he also would play chess for money is that one of the shots no that's a portrait of him no on the right oh yes oh it looks like a new york street scene can you pull that look magazine sherry has false eyelashes that she puts mascara on i thought an interesting double dipping yeah, I was wondering if that was normal and also the eyelashes in Asphalt Jungle. So I didn't realize fake eyelashes were such a big thing in the 50s. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Had to have those eyes pop. Yeah. And the way she takes off her makeup by putting that like lotion. The cold cream. Like, yeah, and then like wiping it off. I like that. It was it, so visceral to exactly. watch while she's like relaying the lines and she's trying to get him to... She's kind of trying to manipulate him to believing her. Yeah, she's so nonchalant 
Uh, yeah. So let's. Should we go into Sherry? Oh my goodness, Sherry. I feel like Sherry is like the typical woman that a misogynist views women. Like she's manipulative. She's lying. She's gold digging. She's tall. <laughs> she is really tall. And what about the the kitchen timer that was going on? The oh, whole on time? their breakfast. Yeah. I thought that was kind of cool because that was the heist morning. Mm-hmm. So it was like tick 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 the whole yeah, time. Yeah, it was like only a matter of time. Running against the clock, ticking time bomb. And they didn't acknowledge it, which I thought was interesting. The characters didn't acknowledge it in the scene. Right. You're sort of like, is this? in the movie what's going on yeah. is someone gonna turn it off like i know you're, you're asking yourself is all these this questions. the sound uh you know like is this the music tone or is this yeah a kitchen timer in the room this the right. music and the sound was all very interesting as well yeah it, it was either like a jazzy transition or it was like bah, bah, bah. yeah dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there was a lot of uh, motion in a lot of that music. And sometimes it was a little heavy-handed. You're like, right. okay, I know something bad's going to happen. Thank exactly. You. I get it. <laughs> yeah, but Sherry was so manipulative. You could see it in everything she did. And I didn't understand how George, I guess he was just a sucker. He was a sucker for He loved lap. her. Yeah. And he even asked but her how? why she married him. And she was sort of like, it's best not to ask those questions. So I mean, from bad. the very, I think because this mom, this movie is so tight and does things so precisely, we have to know that Sherry is a bad person very quickly. Right. And we do at the very beginning. She's reading her magazine. She's like, get me a drink. I got a whole, I got a ache in my head and yeah. it's getting worse. Yeah. <laughs> I was, my jaw dropped. I was like, she is so mean. Is I know. this for real? Exactly. And he's trying to tell her a story about two people in love. And she's like, oh yeah, was she senile? Did she have one foot and a big toe in the grave like me? Yeah. I bet they were young when this story started. <laughs> They're getting older now. <laughs> I know. She was really witty, but also terribly bitter and, and mean. <laughs> she had excellent lines. And she was the downfall of this whole movie. I mean, the suitcase, the poorly made suitcase. Right. Yes. But she told her paramour, Val, about the heist. And they were trying to take the money from George. Yep. He's a meatball with gravy. <laughs> And so Val is the one who kills everybody. Yeah, but at least those chain of events. Right, Mm -hmm. exactly. And at least George kind of gets some retribution. Yeah. At the end, I didn't, no one thought he was capable of it. No. Not even Sherry herself. Yeah. I was like, how is he still alive? It looks like he has a lot of buckshot. Yes, and his face. Yeah. But he survived enough to get there and. Do what he had to do. (laughs) Settle the score. (laughs) Poor George. Yeah, so I didn't even realize. I had to go back to the end scene. I had to rewind because I was like, you only see George and Val shooting at each other. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it pans over to everyone's dead. And And laying down. And you're like, wait a minute. And then you realize one person against three killed the three. I had to rewind to that, too. It's actually kind of cool because George isn't even in the room. So Val comes in. The three are in the room. And then he's like, all right, guys. All right, everybody up. There won't be a mess if you keep your mitts up. <laughs> yep. And then George comes in. A massacre. Massacre if you don't keep your mitts up. Damn it. <laughs> it's a little bit worse than a mess. <laughs> 
<laughs> and then George isn't there. They strip everybody of their guns, and they're like, "Where's, where's the stupid boy? Where's the meatball, George?" <laughs> and then George shoots him, and so I think he just unloads his shotgun into everyone. But no, it's only one gun. Yeah. But it's his partner that shoots the other three, is what I'm saying. But who shoots the partner? Yeah, it doesn't quite. So I was like, how is everyone dead to the left? And we only saw two people shooting each other. Right, and then the camera pans around and shows you all these bodies. They're all dead. After two gunshots. It's interesting. Yeah, it doesn't quite, it doesn't really add up. Yeah. Unless, like you said, the shotgun buckshots. No. Buckshot. Buckshot. A lot of buckshot. It was a nice apartment. <laughs> it was. Railroad style. It was. But now there are eight dead bodies. If I did math correctly, <laughs> there are less. <laughs> One buckshot, eight bodies. <laughs> yeah, that's the shot though, that I was like, oh, reservoir dogs. Like, duh. Right. Ding, ding, ding. Okay, we have backstory on... But that was Val's gun. Foreshadowing. It's also a shotgun. Okay, so a shotgun is introduced when Johnny is talking with Nikki and they say you could kill a whole room full of people with that gun. You could rub out the whole room. Oh, okay. I missed that. Good call. Yeah, I was also wondering why the shotgun was passed around so many times in the flower box. When was it actually... Oh, it's used in the actual robbery. Oh, and so in Terminator 2, Arnold Schwarzenegger has a gun in that same box. Like the same style box. White with the red bow on it. Are there fake flowers on top of it too? That would be a nice touch. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the locker scene when Mike has the flowers with his i guess co-workers they look right. like cops though maybe there was security but he gets so on edge when he asks to what deliver the flowers for him yeah, who asks some the someone to deliver flowers to someone else well they want to put them in the fridge for him because he's not going to see his wife until later and so they're going to wilt so they're like do you want to put them in water why don't we put them in the fridge i'll take them because you're running late and they were well at first they were sort of like oh you're blowing all your money on dames huh and he's like i'm not like you guys these are for my wife so they're offering to do him a solid it was actually a really nice thing but he gets a little squirrely which I get. I was right there with him. Yes. Like my teeth on edge. Yeah. <laughs> he, he he's bare chested. He doesn't even have a shirt on. I was like, this is an interesting choice. Like, he's very vulnerable. He is. And I was afraid that that guy was maybe going to report him, but they're obviously friends, so he gets away with no one disturbing the flower box, and then he puts it in his locker to pass it on to Johnny. Johnny, and then Johnny picks it up changes his clothes multiple times during this yeah i thought that was kind of a cool one because he had so his mask goes with his jacket and shirt and then he takes off his jacket and shirt and his mask and he's a totally different person puts on shades yeah yeah he 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 was very smooth in through that whole process Mm -hmm. he was i mean it went off without a hitch and he was the chess master yeah so you didn't like this movie very much (laughs) I was going to say, I have mixed feelings about this movie. I was, it did not hold my attention as well as, let's say, Asphalt Jungle, because I maybe didn't care about the characters as much. Yeah, I think that's... I hate to say that, but... (laughs) 
I guess I thought this movie was more of a quick and faster pace than Asphalt Jungle. So it held my attention more and it kept the tension. So it was sort of like mm. I had to watch to see what was next. Yeah. And how it was all going to go poorly because you know it is. So I felt like just the tighter pacing helped me watch it better. And I guess it's just a little bit of characterization. But I guess I liked the acting so much that it kind of held it together for me. Mm. Mm-hmm. More than, and I guess Asphalt Jungle is trying to show you like the grittiness. And so it was almost like harder to watch. I feel like this one had a little bit more interesting scenes and sets and lighting. Hmm. And I really liked Johnny's character so much that he, he was so suave and so smooth that I thought it was kind of fun to like follow him through it. Yeah. Yeah. He was like dancing through the whole thing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Tightly choreographed. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting just to compare and contrast his character in Asphalt Jungle to the killing. Cause so he has a fiance that he loves and he's kind of doing this for her in a way. So they can get married and she was waiting for him for five years while he was in Alcatraz for another job that he did. Right. And it's definitely different than Dahl who's like chasing after him and he's so emotionally closed off. At the end, I was sort of like, he has enough money to buy the farm. Go to Kentucky. (laughs) (laughs) You have the money. And then you see him in this movie and it's like, wow, he was getting eaten by horses for six years and it did him a number. (laughs) Laid in that field. <laughs> he survived. <laughs> yeah, I felt like Faye, though, was still similar to Doll in the sense that she's like, I would do anything for you, you know, like, just tell me what to do. And then she's, like, kind of worried about him doing another job. But then she's like, oh, but I trust you, whatever you do. And right. It's like, well, do you? Because you just said you don't want him to go back to jail. And then she's even like, I'm not that smart and I'm not that pretty. Yes. So I'm only going to be with you. Oh you kind of got to be with me, too. So bad. And then she says, like, a few lines. And she's like, I'm already making speeches. <laughs> yeah. Look at me going on and on. Right after you get out of prison. Exactly. Yeah, I was not happy about that. I'm not pretty. I'm not very smart. So please don't leave me alone anymore. Yeah, so it's interesting female characters. So we have Faye, who is kind of stand by your man. And we don't really get, she probably has two scenes Mm -hmm. in the whole movie. She tells him to run away and he doesn't listen to her. Right. And she, she wants him to stay out of prison. And then we have Sherry, who's like snake woman. Which yep. is kind of an interesting spectrum of like the good fiance who's going to wait and then the woman who will not wait. You know, she already has a man on the side. She already wants, she's doing whatever she can to yeah. get the good life. And yeah, exactly. She's always wants the money. Oh my gosh. She gets mad at him for not being a millionaire. She's like, like how can I wait? I've waited five years. How can I wait longer for you to like, get money? And you lied to me. <laughs> I love it when he's like, what's for dinner? And she's like, don't you smell it? It's steak and it's asparagus. And he's like, no, I don't. Oh, you must be too far away. It's over at the store, you big lug. I was like, damn. I know. It was like sharp dialogue, like razor sharp. It was. Yeah. She kept things interesting. I did like Sherry's like, presence on screen. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I thought it was interesting, the scene between her and Johnny, because he's the fast talker of the fast talker witty one of the movie and so they kind of go head to head and i know that it was it was a kind of a scary moment because when sherry is eavesdropping on the shock chalk talk mm-hmm. we're sort of like what's gonna happen mm-hmm. like this is a film noir like what could happen 
I like how he handled it. He was sort of like, oh, okay, like, don't you want your husband to be rich? Because if you keep your mouth shut, he will be. Right. But then he's sort of like, all right, I got to slap that pretty face into hamburger meat. That's all. <laughs> he says that? Yeah. It was a really good line for a bad reason. <laughs> Well, I didn't think it was believable that he was a scary person, though. Like, when she was, she seemed kind of scared at one point, and I was like, I don't, is he really a gangster? Like, I don't, I couldn't yeah. really get a feel that he was that threatening. Right. Okay. So it wasn't believable for you. Yeah. I mean, he, he does tell the other guy to leave for a few hours. Right. Um, and he's sort of like, yeah, I'll just have to kill her. And then they talk. And then he sort of like, you would sell out your own mother for a piece of fudge. He said that to his He said Sherry. that to Sherry. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. He says, you like money. You got a big dollar sign where most women have a heart. That was so good. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, dang. Everyone knows that. How does he know George? We don't know how they all know we each other. We don't know how that. Yeah, it's true. And then how is life like a glass of tea? <laughs> so I wrote, did uh, Forrest Gump steal that from this movie? Yeah, life right. Life is like a box of chocolates well, is he says, better than life is like a glass of tea. But he even says <laughs> that's like that man says life is like a glass of tea. Right. I know. I didn't I didn't really understand that either. But I was like, hmm, Forrest Gump did it, got it better. <laughs> so what Kubrick movies have you seen, Ashley? He, I, I don't know many of his. So, I mean, I've seen, I'm sure I've seen them, but I wouldn't know that he directed them. So some people talk about like a Kubrick style. Oh, The Shining. Oh, I've, yeah, I've seen The Shining. Yeah. Uh, like a Kubrick style of like power, that. control, helplessness. Mm. But then other people talk about how his movies are almost just a world into themselves. Like mm. if you didn't have a credit for The Shining or 2001 Space Odyssey or The Killing, like, would you even know that it was the same person just because he, in some ways, yeah. he doesn't have a style because he gets so immersed in the story that he's telling. Each one. Right. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, because I was like, I can't really pick out his... Like, identifying features. Mm -hmm. Like, we watched John Houston, and it was like, you could kind of tell even by the framing of the shot that it's a Houston film just after watching Maltese Falcon and then Asphalt Jungle. It's right. Like you can kind of tell the feeling of this. Yeah. Or today's age, seeing a flare in a... Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right, which is what... Or yeah. the 360 shot. Yeah. yeah. There's some telltale <laughs> signs that they put in for you. But right. Sterling Hayden did say that uh, Kubrick was the best director he worked had worked with. Well, I I did love the ending of this movie. That is one thing I really did like. Like the last thirty minutes, I thought were awesome, pretty gripping. Yeah, um, and I wrote brilliant ending. Um, but yeah, we talked about the dang suitcase. Why couldn't he put a yeah. rope around it, tape it? That was an American-made suitcase. <sighs> I also thought it was so relatable. He's going. To, oh yes to check in and he's sort of like i want to take this in the cabin with me and they're like no they're these rules are for your safety and comfort and he's like it's not that big i need to have this on me and they're like sorry we'll check it it'll be super secure and get to where you are yep and then it's basically lost like his luggage is lost which yeah in the biggest sense today all the time yep <laughs> i wrote that too the luggage issue same as today <laughs> it's like can i talk to your supervisor <laughs> yeah i was like uh oh two million dollars are getting checked in you're never going to see that bag again. <laughs> Don't you know there's a label?
labor shortage. <laughs> right. Uh, I also were like, this flight's going to be delayed. Right. But I love the, the following of the suitcase and then them on the other side of the fence just watching it on the tarmac and you don't know if it's going to make it and then the dang dog. And there's so many people watching, but you don't get their reactions. Do they're they, not like oh my gosh cash you know you don't hear like the yelling like people usually would in a movie where there's cash laying around and right. people running onto the runway and exactly should be paper but it's so but it much it's up. like snow i also yep. uh read a unsubstantiated rumor that johnny goes onto the tarmac and attempts to collect it but he gets like sucked into the turbines of the airplane oh my god and american airlines was like this doesn't show how safe we are we can't have this as an ending <laughs> like no 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 we are not gonna have that happen to one of our planes <laughs> oh my gosh yeah i thought everyone was pretty calm for all of that money being yeah flown around. yeah we it was just the lady who's kind of a mrs atwater character mm-hmm. like she's kind of like a kooky older woman who's wealthy and loves her poodle and her poodle needs to watch the plane land because she misses daddy (laughs) yeah but you just see her calling to her dog and that's it i knew that the dog because the camera kind of centered on the dog and that lady had a few lines Mm -hmm. about the dog and the dog's in her arms Mm -hmm. is the dog gonna smell something like you know but the dog runs out onto the tarmac in front of the baggage handler's cart and so he swerves the suitcase, which was already so precarious, it was yeah. already wobbling. Like since since he lets it out of his hands, it's wobbling, and it just spills open. <laughs> it happens to be the top suitcase on the right. trailer, and it's like a tornado of money. Yeah, I like that Faye like looks back and like immediately knows like she looks at Johnny, yeah. and Johnny's face falls like that's his future. And and the camera does pause for a long time so we can see every single bill blowing away, and it's like that is his hope and dream, mm-hmm. and hers too. Exactly. And so yeah, I love the line when she tells him to run, and he's like, "Oh, what's the difference?" Yeah. So is that like the the most pessimistic thing ending? I felt like it was a realization of, like, running and jail are the same thing, basically. So he's like, what's what's the difference? It, it, you know, the money's gone. I can't go right. on the run. I don't have it. What, like, it might as matter. well be in jail. Yeah, not have the worry. Yeah. Like, he's already lost. Might right. as well resign himself to his fate. Mm-hmm. I also like when they're leaving from the chalk top. And Marv is out on the street, and the camera very quickly pans up the street to from the car where mm-hmm. all the other guys are to Marv, and then to Val and yeah. maybe Tiny in yeah. the car. Yeah. It was just like, oh, we're like we're watching cinematography here. Yeah, the storytelling through just a few seconds, through just a really quick pan, mm-hmm. and but it wasn't a cut, which I loved because then you can see the placement of everything. Right. I want to know what what do you think the killing why the title like they're gonna make a killing yeah so I guess they were gonna call it um, bed of fear or um, the title of the clean break the title of the novel right okay so this was on the movie posters (laughs) these men had a two million dollar secret until one of them told this woman Oh, this woman. Yeah. And does it show her? She at least get a picture on. The- I don't know. It's just a tagline, and it was shocking. Shocking. 
you want to go straight into German Expressionism or you still want to yeah. do some more noir? What are you? Uh, so I was thinking about going to German Expressionism, watching three to five movies in there. And it's kind of interesting. It's like a socialism experiment because Germany closed their, like they didn't allow any other films to be shown in the country because they were wanting to have their own industries flourish. So there's some like Bauhaus, you know, as you talk about like, the Caravaggio kind of Baroque mm. elements in the design. Because, yeah, this is right after World War One. Yep. And, and that's where Expressionism, Surrealism is kind of coming out. Right. And so then you have these closed borders creatively. So then all the money is going to, you know, German people, German artists to make what they want to make. And then go back to noir. Pulp fiction detective stories were done in the 30s. They couldn't tell those stories a, because of the code, and B, because of uh, the war propaganda machine, mm-hmm. right? So Hollywood couldn't tell these stories that writers wanted to tell them. Then at the end of the war, it's kind of like a good time to like look around at you know man's motivations. And then a lot of Europeans are coming over you know, from running from the Nazis. So you have basically the whole stylistic look. The aesthetic mm-hmm. is already here perfect for the stories of the hard-boiled detectives right so this will be the beginning of that this is pre-hard-boiled detectives <laughs> thanks for listening to no synopsis a film history podcast it's hosted by me elise and my co-host ashley please like and follow we will be coming out with another episode soon